You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. In our text this morning, in verse 1, we read these words, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that John or that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, we can easily think back and we can easily say, you know, this sounds like something we've already heard before. And, of course, that is 100% correct. If you back up to verses 25 and 26 of chapter 3, there you see we have seen this before. There in verse 25, as we've looked at this several times, a discussion or a debate or a controversy arises between some of John's disciples and a certain unnamed Jew over purification. And then in verse 26, they come to John and they complain and they say, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And we've been over this a couple of times to say that, you know, what's going on here is they're they're seeing that Jesus' popularity is increasing. And as Jesus' popularity is increasing, John the Baptist's popularity is beginning to decrease. And of course, his disciples complain about this. And we have spent some time looking at John's response. We spent two weeks looking at John's response to this. In verse 27, John responds with such extraordinary humility. And it's, as I said two weeks ago, it's an informed humility. He says in verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. And one of the reasons I keep going back over this is because it's an envy killer. It's an envy killer. It absolutely destroys the hideous uh, emotion of envy. You know, when you look around and you see somebody who's prospering and, and you have uh, dissatisfaction for that because you want that prosperity for yourself or you want that blessing for yourself, this is an envy killer. Because what this does is this recognizes. It recognizes that it's from God that all blessings flow. And it conditions our heart in such a way that even though we may be suffering, and John the Baptist certainly is suffering. Now what, John the Baptist is living out in the desert eating locusts and wild honey wearing camel's hair. Um, at, certainly Uh, certainly suffering for the kingdom. And here Jesus is prospering. And yet, um, John is joyous. He is joyous. Why? Because this is the Lord's will. This is exactly the way it is to be. When we look around and we see people who are prospering, whether it be this or whether it be that, let us understand that it is the Lord who makes rich and it's the Lord who makes poor. And then we rejoice in the prosperity of those. Even though we ourselves may be working harder, we may have all kinds of reasons where we might say, you know what, I think I deserve that blessing and not this person. You see, it, it, just, it just removes you from all of that stuff. It removes you from all of that stuff. It's not just humility. It's an informed humility. And as it is exercised, it can actually produce joy in the heart. You really become joyous that even if it's someone who doesn't even like you and they're prospering, you can actually experience joy for the blessings that they are receiving. How much better a way to live is that? 
how much better of a way is that to live? But John doesn't stop there. As I've said before, John knows his assignment. He says in verse 28, he says, Fellas, listen, I told you I'm not the Christ. I told you I'm not the Christ. I am the voice of the one calling in the wilderness. Make way for the Christ. John understands his assignment. He understands his assignment. And how do, how do we apply that to our lives? Well, tomorrow morning, listen, we have to get up. We have to do certain things. That's our assignment. Some of us really enjoy what we do. Some of us not so much. But that's our assignment, isn't it? That's our assignment. And, you know, really, uh, I mean, can do at any given point in time, do we have a lot of flexibility to change our assignment? Uh, not, not really. I mean, you could say, okay, I quit and not, but then you've got this thing at home. If you're like, if your house is like ours, you've got this folder, we call it a bill folder. You know, the beloved bill folder. Um, come on, that bill folder dictates that tomorrow morning we're going to have to get up and maybe do things we don't want to do. Um, that's our assignment. That's our assignment. Now, this is followed and what we looked at, and of course, uh, the, the, this first half of this, uh, of John's response to his disciples is verse 30, he must increase, I must decrease. Very important uh, concept there to get, our, uh, to get our minds around. And as I said, uh, this is probably one of the most important lessons that we learn in, in Christian ministry, actually, is from these verses. Such an important lesson. Jesus must increase, we must decrease. And then last week we were looking at this, this powerful presentation of Christ that John gives. You know, he says in verse 31 that, that Jesus is from heaven. He is heavenly. He's above all. And he makes this, this comparison. He is from heaven. I am from earth. There's one reason why. And it's in essence what John is saying is he's saying, listen, yeah, everybody's going to Jesus, and I hear your complaint, and I thank you. I thank you that, you, that you, you love me so much that you're concerned that I'm diminishing. But listen, he must increase, and I want you guys to go follow him. And this is why. Because he is from heaven, and I am from earth. Do you see that in verse 31? He comes from heaven. And verse 32, he bears witness to what he's seen and heard. And last week we were looking at the divinity of, of Christ, and we were saying in terms of his divinity, he has heard every word that has come from the Father. And because of his divinity, he is incapable of forgetting every word. He has heard and he knows and can recall every word that has ever been spoken out of eternity by the Father and by the Holy Spirit. And because of all of this, uh, verse 34, he who comes from, he who from, uh, for he who, I'm having trouble reading this morning, I'll tell you what. Let's slow down. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. He utters the words of God. Of course he utters the words of God. Every word that comes from his mouth is the word of God. How much greater is Christ in this regard to the Christian minister like myself? I can assure you, not every word that comes from my mouth comes from God. Tammy is my witness. She will testify to that. And the same thing can be said of John and all the Old Testament prophets and everyone, but not of Jesus. Every word that comes from his mouth we should hang on because it comes from God. And he goes on to say that he has given the Spirit. Now, this is speaking to his humanity. In terms of his humanity, he has received the Holy Spirit without measure. And the Father loves the Son, and he has given all things into his hand. And then we come to chapter 4, and we read these words. Now, when Jesus learned, 
Here we see this is a uh, this this particular text is focusing on Jesus' humanity again, and it's important that we understand that when we read the Gospels, that there are some texts that 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 speak and reveal the humanity of Jesus, while there are other texts that uh, speak and reveal his divinity. For example, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is speaking of his divine origin, his divine nature. He is God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is speaking of the, the divine Son uh, becoming human, taking on uh, humanity, if you will, taking on a human nature. And when we come to uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, when Jesus learned in terms of his human nature, when he learned that the Pharisees now knew what John's disciples had discovered, okay? And namely, the Pharisees had learned that Jesus is not just baptizing more disciples than John, but notice how it's written. Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John. And we come to this parenthesis, and I think I've said on two occasions now, I think for two weeks in a row, I said, if we get time, we'll look at this parenthesis, and then I, I didn't do it. Notice in parenthesis it says, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Now, why would Jesus choose not to baptize? There's been a number of reasons given for that, and there's a number of lessons that we could ascertain from that. But I think chief and principally, Let's think about it for a moment. Let's suppose a handful of us had been baptized by Jesus himself, and the rest of us were baptized by Judas. Or some of us had been baptized by Matthew. Would it be possible that we may envy those who have been baptized by Jesus and somehow their baptism would be more glorious and more esteemed than our baptism? Or if we were baptized by Jesus, would there be a temptation to glory in the fact that, well, I was baptized by Jesus? And I think the same thing could still happen even if we were baptized by one of the 12. I think that same thing could happen. Uh, Jesus himself elects not to baptize anyone, and I think the reason for that is so that this kind of thing doesn't go on. That's why Jesus is not baptizing anyone. Now, setting that aside, let's look at this text like we did as our Scripture memory verse. You know, sometimes when there's parentheses like that in a sentence, it trips us up. You know, if you read academic books, it might drive you nuts. You ever notice how academic, some of the, some of the most gifted minds are the worst writers that have ever walked the face of the earth. It's like you read their stuff. I got books on my shelf that I don't use because I can't make any sense of them. You, the, the, these, I respect the authors of these books, but I have no idea what they're saying. Because uh, a lot of times they'll, they'll write, and then there'll be parentheses, and then there'll be footnotes, and there'll be all this, all this. I'm like, really? Did you want anyone to understand this? Is this called community? You need to go to Communication 101 and quit writing like this. If you want, because what's going to happen is people are going to misunderstand you and they're going to write other papers and you're going to be all alarmed that someone misunderstood you. I would be surprised that anyone understood you writing like that. And sometimes when we have these parentheses like this, it, it, can, it can trip us up. So let's read this sentence. 
Let's read verse 1. Let's skip the parentheses and read verse 3. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. See how much clearer that becomes. So when he heard, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees were onto this, he leaves. He leaves again for Galilee. Now, why would he do that? Well, it's because of conflict. I mean, John's baptism was making the Pharisees very nervous. Uh, what, is it, what is John's baptism? John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. Or what has a Pharisee got to repent about? And really, for that matter, what would an Orthodox Jew have to repent about? And in the meantime, all of these people are going out to the wilderness. All these people are, are, are going out to the wilderness, and they're, they're observing. They're, they're taking part in this baptism of repentance. That was making ner them nervous, so much so that they sent people out to find out, John, who do you say you are? Well, I'm not the Christ. Well, then who, who, who are you? Well, I, I'm the voice of, I'm, the, I'm that voice that Isaiah spoke about, the voice of the one in the wilderness, calling out, prepare the way for the Lord. That's who I am. Now, if John is making the Pharisees nervous, how much more would Jesus be making them nervous? Jesus is a threat to their, to their what we're going to call custom religion, to their custom Religion. If you keep your place in John, let's look. We're going to look at a couple of passages from Matthew this morning, and let's start with Matthew three. And we'll just work through Matthew's gospel in a couple of spots. In Matthew chapter three, we have Matthew's account of the ministry of John the Baptist. And there, we're told in those days, verse one, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness, and he's preaching, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." Uh, for this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. We get a description of him. John, as I've already said, wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And then notice this, verse 5, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Boy, he was a fiery preacher, wasn't he? You brood of vipers. Um, wow. <laughs> fiery preacher. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. For even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You see, John is threatening their custom religion. He's hitting it in a couple of points. He is threatening their custom religion. Now, if John is threatening their custom religion, how much more is Jesus going to be threatening their custom religion? Because if Jesus is right, then they must be wrong. If Jesus is Lord, they must surrender and submit. If Jesus must increase, they must decrease. And if they must decrease, what happens to their seats of honor? What happens to their position of exaltation? What happens to their status, if you will? Because between them and eternal life is that precious seat of honor. 
that precious seat of honor. And that's always the case with the Pharisee. Between the Pharisee and eternal life in Christ Jesus is that precious seat of honor. Now, the Pharisees, if you turn to chapter 15, we get a little glimpse of just what they've created. The Pharisees, they created a false system of religion. And in fact, I want to give you, I'm going to give you three examples this morning of a uh, man-made false religious system that uh, many believe to be completely orthodox. Many believe that the Pharisees were completely orthodox. In fact, they were the elites. These guys are the ones going to heaven. I mean, if these guys don't make it to heaven, then nobody's going to make it to heaven. And they had created, they started with Judaism, and out of Judaism, they customized their, their own uh, religion that appeared to be orthodox to many people. Yet at the heart of it, it hated Jesus. Appeared beautiful on the outside, appeared to be orthodox by many, but yet at the heart of it, it hated Jesus. And one of the things is it is fixed on external rituals. And I had brought that out when we were studying Nicodemus and the story of Nicodemus. But look at chapter 15, Matthew 15. Now, then the Pharisees and scribes come to Jesus from Jerusalem. This is verse 1. And they say, why do your disciples break, notice this, the tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, first of all, there is no command of Moses that... Everyone wash their hands before they eat. There is a command that the priests wash their hands before they eat, a holy offering that's been given to the Lord, but there is no command from Moses that the disciples should have to wash their hands before they eat. This is part of their tradition. This is their tradition, which they have elevated to uh, probably initially to uh, an equal place uh, with the Word of God. But as we're going to see as we look at this uh, brief passage uh, whenever we add something, whenever it's God and something, that something will ultimately end up trumping God himself. If you read on and you look, Jesus answers them in verse 3, and he says, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Ha, ah, we have another fiery preacher here, don't we? Jesus was a fiery preacher. Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Taking their tradition, teaching it as doctrines, when in reality it is nothing more than the commandments of these men. So their custom-made religion was fixed on external rituals. It elevated man-made tradition above the Word of God. Much of its tradition contradicted the Word of God. And let me just say right there, the tradition in and of itself is not a bad thing. It becomes a bad thing whenever it is elevated to the status of Scripture and whenever it is unbiblical or it would contradict Scripture. And that is exactly what is going on here. Now if you go to Matthew 23... This is one of the fastest surveys of math and gospel I've ever done. We're all the way to chapter 23. Matthew 23, 
And if you look at verse 6, back, back up verse 5, Jesus is pronouncing these woes um, against the scribes and the Pharisees. He says in verse 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. So it's external, for they make their phylacteries. Look at that. Their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. This is their garb. You know, they're in these uh, fancy clothes, if you will. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. You see, what's between eternal life and the Pharisee is that proud seat of honor, that proud seat of honor. And this is a custom religion that the Pharisees have created that has many people believing it's completely orthodox, yet at the very heart of it, they hate Jesus. They hate him. Now, do we have any modern expressions of this? Of course we do. And probably the first one that would be on many of our minds would be Roman Catholicism. You know, I heard a preacher uh, just recently say that Catholicism really is Judaism. It's a, it's a modern form of a corrupt Judaism. There's so much truth to that, so much truth uh, to that. But before, and, and, and I, I, I can make some comments about Roman Catholicism, really, is if, if I would just run off to the second um, modern expression, that is found actually in Protestantism. It's actually found in Protestantism. And I can make a few comments about Roman Catholicism as we go, as we look at many parts of the Protestant church as a modern expression of this. Um, and someone might say, well, how, 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 is, how can modern Protestantism be um, a modern expression of what is going on with the Pharisees? Well, how can it be? Well, how can it become a false or a created or a custom religious system that appears good on the outside, yet is in rebellion to Christ on the inside. How can it be? Well, one, one point, let's think this through for a moment, is abandoning the sufficiency of Scripture. Do you know what I mean by that? Abandoning the sufficiency of Scripture. This has been going on in Protestant, Protestantism for, for a long, long time. Uh, it might take on many forms. It takes on many, many forms. Um, liberalism, for example, you know, somewhere along the line, someone got it in their heads that, you know what, Scripture worked for the ancient man. He was ignorant and superstitious, and Scripture worked for him. But Scripture doesn't work for the modern man who is sophisticated. Uh, he knows better than all of these miracles. He knows better than, you know, some talking snake in the garden as ridiculous uh, he knows that these are just myths and fables that are meant just to give a moral, uh, some kind of moral summary or moral lesson. And there you have liberalism. And it's an abandonment, if you will, of the sufficiency of Scripture. The, and what do I mean by sufficiency of Scripture? I'm using somewhat of a technical term without defining it. I apologize for that. By sufficiency of Scripture, what I mean is that what we need is the Bible. That... Scripture itself contains all that we need for life and godliness. Does that make sense? That's what I mean by sufficiency of Scripture. So I think our system just... I'm going to do a happy days there. Just smack the jukebox. 
Do you like that? I need, I need the, uh, I need the uh, leather jacket, you know. Just have to kick that thing back in gear. Sufficiency of Scripture. Sufficiency of Scripture. Is it enough, or do we need to add to it? Is it enough, or do we need to add to it? The, the Protestant churches have been abandoning the, script, the sufficiency of Scripture in many ways for a long time. And one of the most, I think one of the most common ways it's done today is with private revelation. I can tell you as a church planner over the years, one of the things that has really frustrated me over the years is how many people I've met over the years that, like on the outset, they seem... They want, to, they want to be seen as being so spiritually mature. They want to be seen as being so, I mean, they're just so close to God and so into God and what have you, but they don't have one interest, one, in the exposition of God's Word. They're not interested at all in sitting around studying. They're not going to come to a Bible study where we're, just going to, where we're just going to study God's Word. Instead, what they want to do is they want to sit around. They're more interested in what God told Jimmy, or they're more interested in telling, hey, well, this is what the Lord told me. The Lord told me this, and the Lord told me that. And you have all this business of the Lord telling me. And even within those circles, I read some statistics, I don't know, maybe six months ago, where people who were in those circles recognized that 80% of this, the Lord told me is nothing but nonsense, but yet they continue to do it. They even admit it themselves. Much of it's nonsense, but they still continue to do it. That sounds like we're really close to the Lord. We're really close to the Lord. We don't want you to sit around and do all this. You guys are all a bunch of eggheads sitting around doing all this uh, doctrine stuff. What? I, I, that's something that's really frustrated me over the years. It's like if you're so close to God, why don't you love His Word? See, I don't know if God spoke to Jimmy or not, or Joe or whoever. I have a lot of reservations about that. But I do know that God has spoken here. Look how much he's given us. We ain't got time for all that nonsense. This is a big book. I'm not going to live long enough to preach every one of these verses. We have to be selective. I'm not going to live long enough to do it. This is a big book. we got lots to do. We don't want to be wasting our time with nonsense. And besides that, if you're so close to God and you have so much adoration for God and you, think you, and you revere God so much, how is it that you, are so, you can socialantly say, God told me to tell you this? You are going to put words in God's mouth and not think. Sometimes I hear that stuff and I wonder, do they even remember what they just said like two days later? A holy angel would not dare do such a thing, but say, thus saith the Lord, unless the Lord said what they just repeated. Because it's irreverent. Let's think about this for a minute. Would you want someone running around saying, well, Laura said this. Laura said this, and Emily said this, and Donald said this, when you never said it at all. That would be outrageous especially when some of it's even unbiblical. Second way that we've abandoned the sufficiency of Scripture is, is abandoning Scripture for fads. Fads. How many fads have come through and the, the evangelical church just jumps on it? They're jumping on one now with the social justice fad. Big time. This one, is, this one is really disturbing because we're seeing a lot of leaders who otherwise for much of their career have been pretty orthodox. 
There are people that I've learned from, people I've like, and I'm almost, can't, almost sometimes can't believe myself. What are you doing? This is just another fad that the evangelical church is jumping on. Woke church, social justice. I mean, before that, it was all kinds of other things. I mean, it, you know, the purpose-driven purpose driven life. That was big. Why? It should make perfect sense to us that that was big because it's man-centered. It's always going to be big. And before that, the seeker-sensitive movement, the idea where, oh, you know what, to win souls, what we're going to do is we're going to become more like the world. The church will become so much like the world that the worldling feels comfortable there, and then we're going to do a bait-and-switch. That's kind of deceptive. Bait-and-switch tactics are deceptive. We should be very open about where we're coming from, right from the start. Let's just say right from the start. This is where I am. I, I'm, you know, at various times and at various places, when I worked at Hollywood Music up in Pittsburgh, they called me the Jesus guy. I was very upfront right from the beginning when I started working there. I didn't come up with it, but one of the owners of the music store, said, Rick, he's a Jesus guy. That sounded fine with me. Actually, I kind of like being a Jesus guy. This is what I'm going to be on about. If you want to talk to me about religion, you want to talk to me about politics, you want to talk to me about life, you want to talk to me even about this gear. I'm a Jesus guy. I mean, this stuff only works, you know, because it's obeying the laws that Jesus has established. That's what science does. Science obeys Jesus perfectly every time. But all these fads, we're going to make the church just like the world, so much like the world that people will feel comfortable. And what's actually happened? What has been the end result? The end result has been the world has continued to scorn the church even more. We've lost even more ground in terms of our influence. How are we going to influence this world becoming like the world? We influence this world by being different from the world. There, listen, the closer we draw to Christ... The closer that we draw to Jesus, the more uncomfortable the world will be sitting right here. Why? Because Jesus makes the world nervous. That's why all of these religions, that's why they have to fabricate. We're not going to go directly to Jesus. We're going to go to Mary. That's more comfortable for us. We're not going to go to Jesus. We're going to go to St. Christopher. That's a whole lot more comfortable for us. See what's going on there? Jesus bids us to come straight and directly to him. We're, we're not going to go straight to Jesus. We're going to go in this little box, and we're going to confess to a priest. So here we see the abandonment of the sufficiency of Scripture. We abandon Scripture for experience. There's churches out there that, say, that claim to offer worship experiences. That is frightening. There's only one who can offer a worship experience, and that is the Holy Spirit. He is the only one who can offer a worship experience. But let's think about a worship experience right now. Our capacity to worship God is directly proportional to how well we know God. And where are we going to learn about God? We're going to learn about God in His Word. 
Not sitting around telling each other, well, God told me to tell you. Oh, listen, God told me to tell you to, you know, take that job. God told me to tell you to do this. God told me. No, opening up the Word of God, studying the Word of God, because there God reveals Himself. There's where we get to see what He is like. There's where we get to see who He is. There's where we get to see what He expects of us. That's why the catechism starts the way it does. What's the first catechism question? What is the chief end of man? Anybody. Man's chief end is what? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. How are we to do that? What rule has God given us that we might do that? The Scriptures of the Old and New Testament is the only rule given to us that we may enjoy and we may glorify the Lord. A person's capacity to experience God is directly proportional to how well he or she knows the Bible. Spiritual maturity is in, is spiritual maturity comes as we learn these precepts and we apply them to our lives. Spiritual maturity happens as we say, "Man, look at the way John the Baptist has answered his disciples. Look at the way he's done that." You know, I guess everything in my life has come from God. And I guess I really shouldn't feel these en- these hideous and spirit this the spirit of envy that's overtaking me. I need that No, from now on, I'm going to fight that. I'm going to fight that with what I've learned from John chapter 3. You see, spiritual maturity involves learning John chapter 3. That's how we overcome envy. That's just one example where we could go for many, 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 many other examples. And a person becomes more spiritually mature. John here is demonstrating amazing spiritual maturity as his disciples come to him and say, Master, teacher, rabbi, look. He says, no, fellas, you need to go too. You guys need to go over there. And and, and only then can we really experience God in worship. Because, you see, worship is a response to what we've come to know about God. This message this morning, if it's successful... It will involve us at the end wanting to worship God more, wanting to follow Him closer. That should be the goal of every sermon. That should be the goal of every Bible study. That should be the goal of all theology. Does that make sense? So it directly affects the worship experience. But I can't offer you a worship experience. All I can do is teach the Bible. The Holy Spirit as he works in your heart and as he opens your eyes, as he opens your heart, as he does this various work in, in, your, in your life, well, then he can, he can give you a worship experience. I can't do it. There's others here. I'm going to run out of time. Let me, let me just throw a couple out here. I have many others, but let's think about justification without positional sanctification. Someone say, what? Justification without positional sanctification. I, worded, I could word this a different way, but I worded it this way on purpose because I've, I'm always wanting people to, to know that doctrine matters, that theology matters. What is justification? Justification is the ability, to, uh, the ability of a sinner to stand in God's court. How are we as sinners who think evil thoughts, who say evil things, who have committed evil acts, how are we ever going to be able to stand in God's tribunal? How are we going to be able to stand in His court 
Justification, the doctrine of justification answers that. It's going to be because of the substitute of another. It's going to be because of the substitute of Christ Jesus. Now, um, justification without positional sanctification, what does that look like? That can take on many different forms, but one of the forms it can take on, it would look like this. It would go something like this. Well, Jesus saved me from all of the sins I've committed up till today, but now I better get my act together. Because if I sin tomorrow, I could lose the salvation that he has given me today. How popular is that? See, that's justification for the moment. It's what I used to call it. It's justification for the moment. And if if that's our theology, listen, we are doomed by the end of the day. Probably before lunch. I don't even think we're going to make it out of here, actually, if that's the case. That's why theology matters. Justification speaks of how we can stand in the court. Sanctification, that involves Christ-likeness. Now, sanctification has two sides to it. One is positional. What do I mean by positional? What I mean by positional is what is taught in Ephesians chapter 1, that uh, whenever we are justified... We are justified by putting our faith and our trust in Jesus. He dies in our place. The moment we do that savingly, our sins go to Jesus where he takes the penalty for our sins. That removes our sins from us. But we become positionally sanctified when Jesus gives to us his perfect righteousness. And his perfect righteousness now becomes credited to us. And some of us say, well, that sounds like egghead stuff. What practical application could that have? I'll give you one, addiction. You are not going to make progress with addiction in your life if you don't understand what I've just said, not in a godly way. What could be more practical than that? Because to get over addiction, we have to understand that God is not scowling at us any longer, that he has taken away the shame, he's taken away the guilt, he's taken away the reproach, and that positionally speaking, positionally speaking, when God looks at us, what does he see? He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what he sees. He sees that perfect righteousness that he delights in, and now we are brought in and can be engrafted in as children of God. And as we become, as, we, as, that, as that begins, the light bulb of that begins to light up, well, then we can say, you know what? I'm not that person no more. I don't have to be that person no more. I don't have to act like that person no more. I don't have to do the things that that person did no more. In fact, what would be better for me is to start acting out who I now am. I'm a child of God. I am a child of God. And now I'm going to start behaving like a child of God. Why? Because of his amazing grace. That's why. We have other, how about new birth without new life? New birth without new life. New birth without new life. What's that mean? Well, um, I'll give you a story that will tell you what it means. I don't know, three, four years ago, I was in a place of business here in Hancock County, so I'm going to be very careful to conceal uh, the people that I'm talking about. But while I was there, uh, one fellow that worked there said, Hey, hey uh, you're a pastor, aren't you? And I was like, Yes. Hey, uh, uh, you'll be happy to know I just got baptized. And, I mean, he was just all lit up, and it was really wonderful. I'm like, well, that's wonderful. That's really wonderful. 
He goes, yeah, yeah. And I'm like kind of looking for a church, you know. And I was kind of curious about that. I'm like, okay, you got baptized, and now you're looking for what, what's wrong with the church that baptized you? I'm thinking to myself. But then he went on to say, you know, I, I've been going to this church for a while, you know, but, um, I, you know, I just think God's moving me. I'm okay, all right. So um, I started at that point, at that time, I was writing sermons out in such a way that I could pass out sermons. I could pass out I could pass out these copies that were like extended outlines. Some of you remember those. You've, I used to pass those out. I haven't written anything out like that in a long, long time. But I, used, I drove past that business once a week, and I'd stop in, and I'd give him a copy of these sermons, and he was reading them. And I thought things were going really, really well. He made numerous promises to come. I thought things were going really, really well. And then one day I happened to have a chance to talk with him, and he started talking about his significant other. And I'm like, your significant other? I'm thinking to myself, your significant other. And, and here, he's, he's living with his girlfriend. Now, I, it just, I just sunk. I just sunk. Not, not because he was living with his girlfriend, but because while he's living with his girlfriend, somebody baptized him. You see, there's supposedly new life, or new, new birth, if you will, but the same old sinful life. The reason my heart sunk is because I knew right then and there this thing is going to fizzle out and it's going to fizzle out quick. It's probably why he's fizzling out with the church that he's going to. There's no new life to sustain. There's, there's no new birth, if you will, to sustain this new life. Do you follow me? Jesus says, unless a man be born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. But if he had been sitting under some spectacular message that had a real hard emotional tug on him and invited to come forward and give his life to Christ, and all of this was just an emotional, if you will, uh, and his sin had never been dealt with, his sin had never even been confronted, that repentance is not even necessary, but only all of the benefits of Christ have been presented to him. See, that's going on all the time. As we speak right now, somebody somewhere is talking about all the glorious benefits of Jesus, and they're telling unbelievers about all of the glorious benefits of Jesus, and that's fine, but we can't skip the sin. We can't skip the fact that we are lawbreakers, and we must confess this, and we must turn from this, if we're going to enjoy the benefits. We cannot have new birth without new life. As much as people say, well, Jesus is my Savior, but not my Lord. That's the same thing, isn't it? Is that popular? Better believe it's popular. Jesus is my Savior, but He's not my Lord. Now, let me move to the third my third example, because this one's actually more personal. The third example is the Pharisee that's in our hearts. You know, we start out with Catholicism and Protestantism. Let's zero in on ourselves here. Let's zero in on ourselves. It's the proud Pharisee of the unbelieving heart that must be conquered. Because the proud Pharisee and unbelieving heart, he or she loves to create a custom religion that looks a lot like the orthodox religion and fools many people into believing that it is a member of the orthodox religion while inside rebelling against Christ. Is that clear? Let me flesh it out. 
How can we identify the unbelieving Pharisee or the Pharisee in the unbelieving heart? Well, he or she says something like this, I want to run my life my, life, my way, while adding a little bit of church in and adding a little bit of Sunday school in. I want to run my life my way while adding some church attendance, adding some Sunday school attendance, adding some scripture verses. Does that make sense? Now, let's ask, let's ask the proud pharisaical heart, well, just exactly how do you plan to run your life? Just how do you plan? How, how do you plan to run your life? Well, it's, I'm going to create my own custom religion that really looks a lot like the real deal. And it, to, most, to lots of people who are around the outside, it does look like the real deal. Yet inside, what is happening? Why do we need to create our own custom religion? It's because we're rebelling against Jesus. And what is rebellion against Jesus? Is that friendship? When we rebel against God, are we friends with God? Is rebellion an act of friendship? No, it's the opposite. Rebellion is an act of enmity. It's an act of hatred. So it's the same thing where we say, you know what? Um, I'm going to run my life my way. I'm going to do things my way. But I'll go ahead and start attending church. I'll go ahead and start... I'll go ahead and add a little church. I'll add a little bit of, I'll add a little bit of Sunday school in. Another, another mark of the proud Pharisee is they get really mad when their ways are challenged, don't they? And when your ways are challenged, do you get really angry about that? If someone challenges you lovingly, how do you respond? Do you respond with, and see the Pharisee in our heart lashes out. Let's go back to John chapter 4, verse 1. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea. Why would he do that? Because of conflict. Is it, is it because he's scared? No. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. No, his hour hasn't come yet. We're going to read that over and over again. But let me remind you of something I've shared with you, but it's been a little while. If you look back to John chapter 2, verse 13. We get a time frame here. It's good to have a time frame in our minds. Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. You see that? That's the first Passover. The first Passover. Now, if you turn to John chapter 6, verse 4. John 6, verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. See that? Between 2.13 and 6.4, one year goes by. We get a little time frame here. That's the second Passover. His hour still hasn't come yet. Now, if you turn to John chapter 12 and you look at verse 1, John 12, verse 1, what do you see there? Six days before the Passover. Six days before the Passover. Now his hour has come. Jesus, in the course of these three years, is well aware of this conflict and this hatred, and he shies away from it and rides on the outskirts of it very masterfully until that third Passover where he rides right down smack dab into the face of it. 
And he uses that hatred to accomplish his glorious ends, which is what? Listen, as unbelievers, which we all were once upon a time, as unbelievers, all we have is external religion. That's all we have. We don't have anything else. Roman Catholicism would make sense to us. These various corrupt versions of Protestantism make sense to us. All these other religions may make sense to us. That's all we have as unbelievers. Jesus knows this. And Jesus rides right into the face of that hatred so that he can do what? He can accomplish new life and salvation for us by using that hatred for his crucifixion. I could put it this way, that this hatred and conflict are what Jesus will use to accomplish his salvation. He uses all this hatred. He takes it upon himself to save us from our custom religious beliefs. He takes that upon himself to save us from our custom religious beliefs. And you see, this is what changes our hearts. Whenever we see Jesus on the cross, what is he on the cross? He's on the cross so that he can win the heart of that old rebel that says in his or her heart, I'll run my life my way. Thank you very much. But when that old rebel of rebellious heart sees Jesus dying in their place, what effect does that have when it's accompanied by the Holy Spirit? It has the effect of melting that heart, doesn't it? It has the effect of melting that heart. Oh, how he loves you and me. As we are kicking and screaming in hatred against him, what is he doing? He's calling us and drawing us to himself in mercy, isn't he? How do you respond to that? How do you respond to that? We respond to that by abandoning, abandoning that old custom religion, abandoning that desire to run our lives our way, and surrendering our lives to his lordship. Amen. Heavenly Father, there's so much more that could be said, and our time is over, and our minds are full, and our hearts are full. Lord, we so thank you and praise you that you were willing to do this, that as we were railing against you, as our proud, unbelieving and fallen hearts were railing against you. You were devising a salvation for us. You were showing such love that it quenched that hatred. It extinguished that hatred. It poured water on the fires of this animosity. And as you worked in our hearts by way of your Holy Spirit, you opened our hearts, you opened our eyes to see you in your glory to see you in your mercy. And as we began to see that, then our, our legs became weak and they bowed before you. Oh, Father, we so thank you and praise you for all of salvation is yours, for all of this glory is yours. Had you not intervened in our lives in this way, we would still be enemies. We would still be haters of Jesus, rebelling against him and all of life and thought, word, and deed. 
Oh, Father, we thank you and praise you as we see Jesus dodging, dodging this conflict in John chapter 4. As we, as we move to John chapter 11 and 12 and 13, we'll see him facing this. We'll see him facing this, facing this for the joy that's set before him, namely our souls. Oh, Father, we thank you and we say, here we are, O oh Lord. We surrender our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen.